My name is Andy. I help people live life on purpose. This podcast explores the mystery, beauty, and complexity of life through conversations with an array of incredible practitioners, all of them working at the edge of what's possible for humanity. This is a place for big dreams, bold creativity, and fierce hope. Welcome to the Wonder Dome. If you're inspired by this conversation and you'd like to see it reach more people, you can help the Wonder Dome take flight by sharing it with friends and colleagues, subscribing, giving us a high star rating, and best of all, leaving a glowing review. If you'd like to go even further, consider becoming a monthly supporter. You'll help me keep the lights on and support a wide range of charitable causes. You can learn more at mindfulcreative.coach. Thanks in advance for helping us inspire the world. My guest today is Jackie Nectel. Jackie and I met at a train together where we were placed in a small group. And from the moment I connected with her presence over Zoom, something sparked in me. I said, this person has something happening that I want to know more about. I've been really lucky in the months since then to deepen my relationship with Jackie, to share ideas, talk about the meaning of life, about what's happening in the future of humanity, all the kind of stuff that I really dig. And we realized that we needed to just record that. So that's what our conversation is today. It's kind of hard to describe what Jackie does, but I've I've come recently to call her a high priestess of synergy. She is someone who deeply trusts the natural flow of life and who is constantly noticing connections that most other people miss, and then following those connections into surprising insights, discoveries, possibilities about how people work and how life happens and how we grow and evolve. She's the co-founder of something called the Flow Consciousness Institute. You may have heard the word flow as of late. It's a wonderful mental, physical, emotional, some might even say spiritual state that all humans have the capacity to enter. Jackie's work is about helping people tap into and unlock that flow consciousness. And you'll get a taste of that in our conversation today as we flow. She's a remarkable boundary crosser, a remarkable connector, a real pioneer in the spaces of human interconnection. She's also, and we don't talk a lot about this, but we do talk a bit about it. She's also a specialist working with individuals in autism, which was her previous career before stepping into the work she does now. And she's currently working, in addition to all the other amazing stuff she does, she's currently working to revolutionize therapy delivery to support children with special needs in categories like autism and other things of that nature. So she's just a deeply caring, loving, generous, brilliant, thoughtful soul. And our conversation today covers a lot of territory. I hope you dig it. So let's get settled in. And hear what Jackie has for us. Jackie, welcome to the Wonder Dome. Thank you so much. It's so good to be here with you. Yeah. Thanks for joining me early your time. You're out there on the beautiful West Coast. I'm here in the Boston area. So appreciate you doing an early morning conversation with me. I've been really looking forward to this. My pleasure. Me too. It's been a long time in the making. It sure has. So... I like to let my guests know how I encounter them because I think that's, that's really a big part of why I invited you on the show. And the sort of thing, if I were to put it in a headline, the way that I encounter you, Jackie, is as someone who is deeply, deeply attuned to other people and to their state of well-being. Like you just show up and everyone around you kind of softens and everyone around you kind of just leans forward. And I just really appreciate the way that you're not just talking about helping people and, you know, doing all the sort of external oriented things that you all, that you definitely do to help people, but it actually just the way that you are and the way that you, you be around other people sort of models that I think it's a beautiful gift. Mm, thank you so much. Yeah. I'm really receiving that. Thank mm. you. Yeah, my hope is that anyone listening gets at least like a little teeny taste of that through through our audio conversation. So I'm really excited to see where we go today. Mm, thank you so much. Yeah. One thing, so the 
the we were talking a bit before the call, the sort of conversation before the recording, and I didn't totally realize this. I think I had hints of it, but what I'm really was really excited to hear from you is that you are deeply, deeply, deeply investing yourself and your energy in the question of what we might call conscious leadership or conscious evolution, sort of this question of, of who we are as a species and where we're going and what it might take for us to evolve in the face of some incredibly complex dynamics and crises that are sweeping around the, the planet right now. Absolutely. And yeah, I, I wonder how did you, how did you find your way? Like what was the, what was a spark or these sparks that made you kind of wake up and say, this is where my life energy needs to be going right now. Hmm. I think for me, the spark started really young. And hmm. um, so the earliest times I remember being a teenager and just in this exploration of how do I evolve myself? How do I break these patterns in my lineage that aren't serving me? Mm. And so, you know, being 14 and reading the Bhagavad Gita and, <laughs> and uh, Thich Nhat Hanh and exploring Buddhism and Eastern wisdom traditions and uh, going deep into psychology as an attempt to really heal some of these deep wounded patterns that I was experienced that were creating a lot of struggle and suffering in my own life. And um, so it, it's been a, a long journey and exploration and excavation of all of these things in my own psyche so that I could experience more freedom, more joy, more peace. And along the way, people started to seek me out to ask what I was doing that got me to this place of, you know, more emotional freedom and just this expansive way of living. And I, I didn't seek out this as my purpose, but I think also um, the death of my brother 11 years ago was a major catalyst for me mm -hmm. and really checking in with myself to see, even though I was living an incredible purpose-filled life, there were huge elements of it that were out of alignment that weren't self, they weren't serving me. I was overextending myself. I had no boundaries. I, I was um, burnt out and I got a chronic autoimmune condition. And so all of these things were happening. So when my brother passed, it was an opportunity to really sit and reflect on my life and see what pieces were out of alignment and needed a course correction. And I walked away from my life as I knew it. I, took a year long sabbatical and did a solo journey around the world. And that was a hugely transformational hero's journey. Again, just going deeper into myself and my healing and an incredible growth experience. And I just realized that I need to share these tools, these practices, these things that were allowing me to live this way with the world and, um, I had a beautiful experience uh, a couple months ago, you know, in the, the height of the pandemic, got a message from a student who had been suicidal for 18 months mm. and she was in a really dark place. And in doing this work with our course, she came out the other side and she said that this work saved her life. And I knew at that point, the work that I was doing was life changing, but life saving hit me to my core because my brother ultimately uh, overdosed. And so it felt like this loop had closed. Like I was doing this for him. And so his mm. death was my wake up call to my purpose and to save other people from the suffering that they were experiencing. Mm. And, and so it really like felt like this full circle moment. Oh my gosh. Wow. That really touches me. I, there's like seven things I want to want to talk about here. So let me see where what feels the most. I guess I, I'm, I definitely want to hear more about the work that you do because the glimpses I've caught of it, which I think speaks to how I introduced you, is a big part of this this way you move through the world, and I think help other people move through 
But I want to uh, maybe underline one thing and, and ask a question uh, to hear a bit more about the story you just shared. Would that be all right? Absolutely. Yeah. I want to underline like how beautiful and special it is, especially in our culture, for a 14-year-old to, I mean, it sounds like for you it was necessity, but I kind of wish that more 14-year-olds were given permission to engage with the kind of texts and ideas that you were engaging with at that moment where you're sort of realizing that if you're going to break from these lineages, there was, there was, had to be another way. And uh, the book Anger by Thich Nhat Hanh was also a book for me that just was like the door into a whole mm. world. So I just want to underline, like, although for you, it's maybe coming from a place of struggle and necessity, there's something really beautiful in inviting young people we often really think of as maybe not ready or, or, you know, just not capable of that kind of depth into that could, could be incredibly powerful. So just really, really, it's really that resonated with me. And I'm thinking about where will my daughter be when she's 14 years old and what, and what books will she be reading? And I hope that they're, I hope for her sake that there are the kind of things that you're reading. So thank you for sharing that. Yeah. Well, there was also the path I was, um, I was into punk rock at the nice. time. So nice. I was, I was, you know, I was going to this Catholic school, this college prep school where everyone was looking exactly the same. We had a uniform and, and really rigid rules mm. on how to be. Mm. And it felt so stifling to me. Mm. And so I went <laughs> completely in the opposite direction and rebelled against that and was really in this exploration of identity and questioning everything. So I think that you know, impulse, that impulse in me to really pick things apart and and question where I was taking on these ideas from and just generally accepting as truth was kind of really born out of that. Mm. And I, you know, I think children are so naturally orienting this way. And so I, I I feel like we have so much to learn from children Hmm. And then we put them in these boxes, we condition them and tell them to act a certain way, look a certain way, be a certain way, do a certain thing, and really stifle their creativity. And so it's not really about how do we get our children to become this way? They already are it. Mm. And Mm. it's how do we not squash it? And how do we create recreate our education system and all of our different systems in a way that encourages you know this this way of of really being in inquiry and question and having emotional intelligence and things like that and so i think it's it's really more to do with the systems that we have in place mm. than it is, you know, hoping that they're going to be like that because they, they come in like that and totally. they all do. Mm. So, and I think as, you know, these generations of uh, millennials are having children, millennials have had the opportunity to have access to more of these tools through the internet. And so there's been more awakening. There's been more, consciousness and so i'm hopeful that the the next generations will be parented in a way that keeps things open and and encourages the the flourishing of that creativity yeah sort of we got we need more punk rock parenting like we need more parents who in those moments where their child does something that might be deemed as precocious or nonconformist or weird I, like there's a, mo- I feel like there's a lot of moment that parents, without even really being conscious of it, they're in public, and and right now maybe less so, but in general, like they're in public, and their kid does something, and there's just this like kind of pressure, and it's hard to say how much of it is actual pressure versus how much is it is perceived pressure, but it's like, oh, I better correct that behavior because people are watching, and I'm embarrassed or I'm uncomfortable. Absolutely. And my and my kid, I can't let my kid make me embarrassed or uncomfortable. And it just happens so quickly that we're not conscious of it. 
But what I hear you saying is actually like as parents, we have an op- we have a, a really critical role to play in the the protection of our our children's natural creative energy to create enough space inside of these systems that can be oppressive and harmful and reductive to create enough space that they can like stay the course of who they are as opposed to getting that squashed. Absolutely. It's, it's finding that balance too of, of, of scaffolding and, and creating safety in, in the world and, and teaching them uh, boundaries and it's it's really a dance. And um, I was an autism specialist in my previous career. Mm-hmm. And so much of what we were taught is how do we make these really unique, gifted, brilliant souls? How do we make them typical? How do we get them to mm-hmm. you know, blend in with society and mm-hmm. act, quote unquote, normal? And it really... It, it was painful in ways because these kids had such incredible, unique abilities. Mm. And again, it, it's, it's, there's desire to have everyone fit in that. I, I feel like we need to break the mold a bit. <sighs> yeah. Oh God. Yeah. It's, a, it's almost a tragedy. It is. No, it's not almost, it is a tragedy there are many tragedies here, but one is that the simple fact that to encounter deeply spiritual works like the, like Thich Nhat Hanh's work, that that has to be an act of rebellion, <laughs> that that has to be like a punk rock move that is the exception and, and not the quote unquote norm is a tragedy. And that we really have a lot of work to do collectively to create more space for like to make nonconformity a bit more conventional. That's what I yeah. hear you saying. I, I absolutely. Yeah. So it's, so this kind of leads nicely to my question, which was about this this journey around the world that you took. It sounds like you were already, you know, up until your brother's loss, you were you were you had evolved in lots of ways, and and there's a way in which you thought you were living the life you wanted to be living, and and his his passing kind of woke you up to some unhealthy dynamics in your life. Is that right? Absolutely. Yeah. So what was it about going around the world and maybe, and I have, I'm sort of sensing that that maybe opened your eyes to a lot of different ways of being, which is a a form of nonconformity. And I just would love to hear you say more about, about what that journey did for you or how it did it for you. Yeah. So um, some of the patterns that I was waking up to, and I had done a lot of deep work around, but became glaringly obvious, um, coming from a family with a lot of addiction, I, I had patterns of compulsive behavior, perfectionism, mm. Um, mm. It really a lot of control. There mm. was, um, I was a control freak, people pleasing, type A overachieving, the you know, so externally, my world looked amazing. I had a really successful career. I was, you know, living this incredible life. And on many levels, it was, but there was a part of me that felt deeply unfulfilled. And like, you know, the duck with the legs going so fast under the water, but on the surface was really calm. Mm-hmm. Um, that's kind of, there was this undercurrent of anxiety that I didn't even know was there. Mm-hmm. And I didn't trust myself. I didn't trust life. I couldn't trust other people. You know, there was this feeling that at any moment the shoe would drop Mm -hmm. and um, taking this trip around the world was really, I mean, I was by myself, you know, traveling to places that um, were deemed by others to be unsafe for women to Mm -hmm. travel. Uh, You know, all of these projections of, of other people's fears onto what was possible for me. And along the way, I had to really learn to surrender control for, for one thing, you know, Mm. someone who had always micromanaged everything. So things wouldn't fall apart. You just can't do that when you're traveling, particularly to developing nations and Bolivia, you know, there's just not, 
a lot of infrastructure and things. So things are not reliable. You know, we get so used to our creature comforts here and that, you know, if you're waiting for a bus, it generally comes at the time that it's on the schedule, you know, in, in other places, that's just not the case. And mm. so really having to let go of things needing to be a certain way mm -hmm. and, um, and really just surrender and not have plans. And then as I started to loosen the reins on that, I would have these unbelievable experiences where I would just, I would meet someone that uh, had I planned this whole part of the trip, then I wouldn't have had the space to go on this adventure. You know, I, um, I had no intentions of going to Africa because a lot of people had told me, you know, it's not safe for a woman. And I just had all of these fears around it. And then uh, I met these guys, you know, we were the only backpackers in Bora Bora, you know, nobody goes to Bora Bora you know, on a shoestring. Um, but the three of us, we met and they, we were all flying to New Zealand together and they were showing me all of the pictures of their trip. And I was like, wow, Namibia looks amazing. I, mm. you know, I didn't even know where Namibia was before. And I was like, I need to go there. And um, I had met someone in Argentina who his family did a lot of work with the Maasai. And I was like, I want to experience that culture. You know, mm -hmm. can you introduce me so I can, I, I can go and spend some time with them. And, and so all of a sudden this beautiful trip unfolded that I had completely different plans for. I was all set to, uh, to go sailing around the Mediterranean or something. And so I was having these experiences where I got to be with the Maasai for an initiation ritual. And it was one of the most potent experiences. And then also uh, a friend had invited me to climb Kilimanjaro. And at that point I'd already sent home all of my trekking gear. I thought I was done with climbing and I really had no desire to do it. But then I sat with it and I was like, well, what if we could do it for autism charity and, you know, set this plan to raise $10,000. All of a sudden people were writing articles about it and I had to do it. But at that point I was nine months into a trip and I, you know, was living off peanut butter sandwiches in an RV <laughs> kind of thing. I didn't feel really ready to climb this mountain. So I found a retreat center in Australia where I could hike, I could detox and really like at least spend a couple of weeks prepping myself to do this. Mm. And this retreat was on the Sunshine Coast in a tiny little town called Mullaney that I never would have gone to otherwise. And it ended up completely changing my life. And it was a huge quantum leap for my consciousness and I had no intentions to go there, but following wow. this thread of, of synchronicity and just being open to these new possibilities and going outside of my plan led me to this place that I got to heal some of my deepest wounds <sighs> and, you know, started exploring mindfulness meditation, doing quantum hypnotic regressions and mm -hmm. uh, doing a lot of deep coaching work and things that were allowing me to see new perspectives that, you know, I, I thought I was in a really great place at that point. And I, I sat through their intensive and I was so triggered. So many of the things that they were saying were just rocking my worldview and I, you know, had this experience of agitation in my nervous system. And I was like, no, this is bullshit. You know, it was just pushing all of my buttons. Mm -hmm. And I had done enough work prior to that, that I know that when I'm in that resistance and so activated and triggered, I'm like, okay, there's something here. For mm -hmm. me. And so mm -hmm. surrendering to that really set me free in so many ways. These new perspectives had opened up new worlds of possibility and have essentially become a lot of the foundation for the work that I'm doing now. And so that was 11 years ago. And, you know, I, I looking back, it's easy to see how all the dots connected in a way that uh, my brother needed to die for me to go on this journey and I needed to be invited to climb Kilimanjaro to say yes to that so that I would end up at this retreat that would change my life, become the foundation of what I'm teaching now, and you know, ultimately become my purpose in the world. 
And so many times we get stuck like, oh, I don't know what my purpose is. And we're trying to figure out how to get there. Mm-hmm. But our rational minds can only see a sliver of possibility. It's not open to the infinite possibilities that exist. And so the more we're able to surrender, you know, let go of the plan, let go of trying to control things and just follow that inner compass that we all have, our intuitive wisdom and our excitement and inspiration, that is the compass that leads us to the next step, to the next step, to the next step. And then it unfolds and suddenly we're in our purpose. So I wasn't trying to get there. I was just like fully surrendering to life. Yeah. God, that's such a, such a rich journey. And I really appreciate you taking us and me through a bit of it. I'm really moved to, to imagine some of these experiences that you had. I'm thinking of the book, The Life of Pi, and there's a line in that where, where the main character as an adult says something like, life is one long act of letting go. Hmm. And you're using the word surrender a lot. Like there's a, there's a letting go of plan. There's a letting go of who you think you are. There's a letting go of where you think you're supposed to be or what's safe or what's not safe. And just really like that letting go, the paradox is it sounds like it opened a lot for you that Absolutely. otherwise would have been completely invisible or closed off. Absolutely. Right? And surrender, you know, kind of has these connotations that I, I think don't serve. It's the waving the mm. white flag and, and people think of surrender as giving up mm. when it's really, um, it's a journey from ego to essence. Mm. And mm. so the willingness to let go, like you said, of who we think we are. And that's the journey is really stripping away all of the layers of how we identify in the world, how we think we get our value and our worthiness, peeling back all of that, questioning where all of our beliefs came from and getting to the place where we're actually operating from our true nature (sighs) and operating from our essence. And then we tap into that place of pure potential and what we're actually here to do. And it's, you know, it sounds, it sounds really easy, you know, just, just surrender. Yeah. But just book a, just book a round trip flight, then cancel your first plans when you meet someone cool and you'll find your purpose. Give it time. Yeah. You know, and that's the thing is, you know, I find most people have difficulty with, with the surrender aspect. Yeah. Yeah. Like there's a way in which I could even be tempted to be like, okay, okay. Got it. Like, so so I need to go on a around the world trip. And when I do that, then I'll find my, then my, you know, and it's sort of like, Oh, you're planning again. Right. And that's <laughs> you're, not, you're not surrendering again. Yeah. Exactly. It's, right. It's, right. There's what, what is your path? That was my path. Right. And, you know, really getting clear on like what our unique soul path is. And, you know, the more we're able to strip away everything that's not us, you know, that's not real, which, you know, I think is, that's also the challenging part for people is we, we get so wrapped up in identification and, you know, individuation and wanting to be this unique expression. But then at the same time, you know, now you're saying to strip it all away. And and then it's like, oh, well then, well then who am I? Yeah. Scary. And that's really, it's scary. And, but that really just sitting in that question, who am I? is such a potent experience. Hmm. And so, you know, it's paradoxical, like most things in life, you know, it's, it's, how do I be this unique individuated expression fully expressed in who I am, but then at the same time, stripping away all of that to get to the essence of who I Mm. really am. Mm. Mm. Oh God, that's good stuff, Jackie. Hmm. Was the, uh, just a, a kind of, clarification in the story was your time with the the Maasai before or after you went went on this retreat in Australia uh looking back now I'm trying to remember the timeline um I guess the reason I'm asking is because it strikes me that it sounds like both of those experiences were each in their own very 
culturally different way, a version of what you're describing, which is like an invitation into some act of letting go or some mm-hmm. act of evolving or some act of enacting something different than, than the social norms that you had kind of carried with you up until those moments. And I yeah. wonder if that's true or not. Um, yeah. I mean, you could say that that retreat was an initiation for yeah. me. And yeah. so in the same way that the Maasai were going through their initiation into adulthood and this powerful rite of passage that was true for me. And Mm. even though I was, you know, beyond the age of, you know, when you transition into adulthood, I think that's the thing is so often. And this is, I think for our society as a whole, we're really at this adolescent consciousness Mm. and, Mm. And and so I, I kind of feel like this whole year is an initiation. It's a huge <laughs> rite of passage for us now into this journey of adulthood and a more evolved, developed consciousness. And so, yeah, I think for me that, you know, thank you for drawing that parallel because I didn't really think about it, but that was a powerful initiation for me shifting into this new paradigm consciousness that, you know, allowed me to see a more meta perspective, you know, this higher perspective Hmm. that came with so much freedom. Hmm. A friend of mine here in in Massachusetts did this really cool art installation back in, I guess it would have been May or June, and she called it the coronation. And the word corona Mm -hmm. is the root word inside coronation, which means to crown which is a form of initiation. And totally. she created a ring of fire, like just a fire pit, and wow. then let that fire, invited all of us to come to the fire, let the fire burn down. And then when we were ready, if we were ready to invite East of us to think about what is it that this moment of coronation is asking or inviting us to. And when we were ready to step across the low burning fire with a sense that we were passing through some kind of doorway or some kind of um, into some new space. Mm. And it sounds like, so when you're talking about this journey you've been on, like both the kind of micro moments of being with the Maasai or this, this however many days it was in the retreat center, but also the slightly more macro journey of like losing someone you love and going around the world. Like there's this quality of passage that I'm hearing and what you went through. And I get the sense that that's also what you invite people into. Is that right? Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. I'm not here to tell people the answers or, or give them a a prescription for, for how to live and how to be. It's really how to unlock their own intuitive guidance, their own intuitive wisdom and tapping into those parts of themselves you know like we don't need gurus everything we need is with, yeah. within us and yeah. so it's, it's just kind of giving people more of a map mm. and helping them to have the tools and to be able to access those those deeper parts of ourselves mm. yeah there and it seems to me that there maybe maybe this is my projection so tell me if this is feels true for you but it sort of seems to me that as you just sort of willingly said, okay, let me let go, but let me let go a little bit more, a little bit more. Okay. These guys seem cool. Let me follow them. Oh, oh, cool. They're doing this. I've always wanted to go be with the Messiah. Okay. That's just like, you're sort of just noticing you couldn't see a year ahead. You couldn't see 10 years ahead, but you could see a few steps ahead. And you were, there was a part of you that was awake enough to listen to those clues, to listen when it got uncomfortable and keep going, but also to listen when it got exciting to keep going. And it seems to me to go back to our earlier conversation about parenting and, and, and sort of raising people that a lot of us have been the parts of us that are equipped to do that listening. They're not, they're not dead and gone, but they've been buried quite deep by our socialization. And how, when you work with someone, how do you help them start to listen in the same way that you had the the privilege and the blessing to start to listen in your own life? Like, how do you invite them into that without being too prescriptive, without saying, 
you need to let go of your ego now, right? Like how do you just sort of yeah. get them, invite them into that space more? What does that look like? Yeah. And the thing is, I didn't have access to my intuition or that inner GPS for so long, especially, you know, given the history of compulsions and, and just numbing and not wanting to feel my feelings because it was scary. And, and, mm. and so not mm. being in touch with my body and the, the beautiful wisdom that it contains really operating from my mind, which I mm. think so many of us are trying to think things through and figure it out, which there's nothing wrong with it. It's just limited mm-hmm. in the aperture and what it allows you to be able to take in the billions of bits of sensory data that are left out because we're, you know, our cognitive bias is filtering everything to what we already mm-hmm. believe to be true. Mm-hmm. And so I had to relearn how to tap into that. And I think, you know, that's what happened on that trip was I, I had to really learn to check in with my body and to learn to trust myself and to trust other people and to really surrender to life and trust life overall. I, so I think that journey helped me to really tap into that place and um, and really start to see like where I was holding myself back. And so the invitation when I work with people is to really look at all of the conditioning, the beliefs and perceptions, the the narratives about ourselves, about others, about the world that we've generally either consciously or unconsciously accepted to be true. And that's then the lens that we're seeing life through. And we don't see reality as it is. We see it as we are and, and how we're perceiving it because we're living in this subjective reality. So everything we are filtering through the lens of our beliefs and our perceptions. So the invitation begins with this deep inner journey to look at all of these beliefs and perceptions that we're carrying that's creating our map of reality. Mm. And often it's incredibly limiting. And so, you know, what um, what we've done over the last decade is really mapped the unconscious to find the most insidious of these beliefs, mapping hundreds of them and giving people the tools to actually reprogram them. And mm-hmm. so to go in at the deepest levels at the mental, emotional, energetic and physical level to actually excavate and clear out those beliefs and to take on more expansive, empowering beliefs that becomes the new lens that you're perceiving life through mm, mm. that opens the aperture to, you know, the, the infinite possibilities that actually exist rather than having these blinders on. And so once we start to do that, um, really getting out of the mind and getting into the body and learning to use that felt sense, that innate gift that mm. we all have, and learning to tap into it and to make our decisions from that place rather than from the rational mind, which is inherently limited and to, you know, start to trust it because that's the thing is our intuition is quantum. It is exponential. It doesn't often make sense and may tell you to do the thing that is, you know, the very thing that you fear, or it's uh, just seems impossible. And so we tend to not trust it. And so we don't take action on it. Mm. So it, operating mm. from intuition is actually really easy or it's, it's simple, not easy. It's simple. Yeah. yeah. And so really learning to take action from that place re- requires a high level of trust. Yeah. And so it's building this intuitive muscle to start really accepting that and, and to take action from that place. Mm. You talked about the, it's so exciting. And I I really am moved by that possibility. Like it would be a deep wish that, that all of us or as many of us as possible have that kind of self-trust because what a world we'd find ourselves in. My, that's my wish as well. Yeah. You talked a bit about the beliefs and excavating and identifying them. And and maybe you could just give us a flavor. Like what are some of the, belief patterns or memes or 
uh, kind of ideologies that that many of us have inherited unknowingly that when we start to let go of them, more space opens up for the intuitive flow to come through. Yeah. So most of us um, think our thoughts are random. And, you know, as someone who does a lot of work with meditation, I'm sure you encounter people that really have trouble quieting their mind or controlling their thoughts and get in these loops and um, get really caught up in the monkey mind. But we don't think of where our thoughts are generated from. Like, what is the genesis of our thoughts? And so we work with a a framework that shows that at the root of our, our thoughts, at the deepest, deepest layer are our beliefs and our perceptions. Hmm. And so our beliefs create our emotional experience of reality, which gives rise to our thoughts, which influences our decisions, our actions, and ultimately the results that we get in life. Hmm. And so when we're in a moment of feeling triggered or caught in a thought loop, we get to reverse engineer it and use that experience as a feedback mechanism to go deeper to see, okay, what must I believe in order to be having this thought? Mm. What must I believe in order to be experiencing this emotional response or to be feeling triggered? And start with this inquiry to get down to the deeper layers. And so it's never about like what's going on in that moment. You know, it's always connected to something deeper, mm. these repressed emotions that we, we, we never fully processed and getting to these beliefs that we've either inherited epigenetically in our DNA from our ancestors, you know, science is showing that for up to 14 generations, we've taken on these different patterns of fear and things from, you know, our ancestors who may have lived through things like the depression or slavery or uh, the Holocaust. And then all of these different experiences can be programmed into our DNA. So we think Mm -hmm. we come into the world as a blank slate, but that's not the case. And then, as you know, having a a four-month-old, our from birth to seven, we're basically a sponge, just soaking up all of these different beliefs and perceptions and making sense of the world without the cognition to actually do it. And so we're taking on all of these narratives and and being programmed and imprinted with these beliefs at such a young age that are, you know, from this place of not having the cognition to make actually accurate understandings of the world. And so we're taking on these beliefs from the media, our culture, society, religion, our parents, like all of these things were being indoctrinated and programmed. Mm. And so at the deepest levels, we find things like, I'm not worthy. I'm not lovable. Mm. I'm a fraud. I'm an imposter. I'm not good enough. I'm not blank enough, you know, Mm. insert any Mm. number of things in there, Mm. Um, you know, that we've all had some experience with or some flavor of, uh, I don't belong. I don't fit in. I'm weird. You know, like all of these different things. And those tend to be the deepest ones, but then we have beliefs about how we need to show up in the world. You know, I have to work hard to be successful. Mm. Nothing good comes easy. Like all Mm. of these Mm. sayings that you see how are just programming in struggle and this need to hustle and grind Mm. and make things happen. It's just Mm. not the case. Mm. So, you know, because we have this confirmation bias and because of the way our brains have evolved to operate in the world, we're filtering everything through that lens, through that belief, through that perception, um, and, and in order to make sense of the world. And when we hold that deep belief, let's say, I don't belong, we're going to then see life through that lens. And so you go to a party and no one's talking to you. You're Mm. triggered and you're making it about, I don't belong. I don't Mm. fit in. I'm awkward. I'm weird, whatever it is. And reinforcing that narrative. Um, And, you know, that will shape how you show up in life. It'll shape your experience of the world. And you might be the one energetically creating that because you hold that deeper belief. Hmm. So I feel like I don't belong. I go to a party. I'm acting, you know, in this way that's fearful and uncomfortable and, and not 
engaging and, and not reaching out to people, but then I'm making the narrative fit that, well, it's because I don't belong. Mm. And then I retreat mm. and then I, you know, go back into this, this cycle. Mm. And so we have thousands of these beliefs and when not identified and, and excavated are unknowingly controlling our lives. And so it's really bringing conscious awareness to all of these programs and patterns that we, we, we have operating either consciously or unconsciously so that we, we can change them. So powerful. What I sort of the metaphor that's emerging for me, which I think is a, is a bit reductive, but still fun to play with is it's like, you're, you're sort of surfacing the operating code. Exactly. Like, like, and, and the cool thing about that, in addition to, and maybe we can talk a bit more about what people do once they've surfaced it, but just being aware of it strikes me as then that meta layer allows you to make a choice where before it felt like there was no choice. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. So it's really about taking responsibility for everything that's showing up in your reality, because then you are at cause and otherwise you're at effect. And so by bringing conscious awareness to these programs, you know, we call flow a a new operating system for your consciousness that allows you to live in this more limitless reality. So it is basically restoring factory settings and then, (laughs) you know, updating to the, the most, you know, current, high level software that there is. And so programming in the most expansive layers of reality and um, yeah, so it, it really, it sets you free because you get that pause and you're not operating from a reactive place. You get to respond to life mm-hmm. when you start to experience a trigger and immediately want to go into blame and finding other, you know, what other people are doing wrong and, Oh, this person did this. And no, it's like, okay, what am I making this mean about me? Mm. And then mm. seeing what those deeper layers of belief and emotion are being activated and triggered. Mm. So then we can create a different response to it. Yeah. So once you're, once you see the code and you start to up, upgrade, are there, is there a specific set of new kind of code blocks that you're actively working with? Or is it, is it a bit more just about the letting go of the old and seeing what comes in? Like, how does that, what happens at that moment when you say, okay, I'm ready to let go of the the story that I'm not enough or that I don't belong. Is it as quote unquote simple as putting in a new belief that says I do belong, or is there something else happening there as you start to do this, this upgrade? As you call yeah. It. yeah. So um, that's a great question. And so, yes, there's you know so much power in the letting go. And we work with different neurobiological practices, energetic practices, somatic practices to actually like reprogram those beliefs. Yeah. And then imprinting the positive expansive belief is also so important, if not mm. more, because mm. this is how you're rewiring those neural pathways. And it's like, when you go to work the same way every day, you get in the car, you just go on autopilot. It's like, you don't even realize like how you got there. It's like, did I even stop at red lights? You know, because that pattern is so ingrained, it's so well grooved that you just kind of go into this default autopilot. Mm -hmm. And that's kind of how we operate normally. And so as you're changing and rewiring this new neural pathway, you know, initially it it takes some, a little bit of conscious effort to, to find a new way. Let's say you change jobs and for 30 years, you went the same way to work every day. Um, But now, you know, used to turn left and now you need to go right. You're going to need to pay attention the first couple Mm -hmm. times Mm -hmm. to really start making that new choice. And so by taking on this new belief, and we, we give people lists of the most expansive beliefs, but you can just, you know, initially flip it to what the most expansive opposite belief is, mm. whatever the belief is that you're, you're eliminating and take on the most expansive opposite. But then what you want to do is start to use the reticular activating system, the same thing that you use to, you know, keep you locked in, in limitation, you use it to your benefit and start to 
gather evidence that supports the new belief. And so Mm. that becomes the lens and the filter. And you immediately start to find all of the ways that that belief has actually shifted. So, you know, taking on this new belief about, you know, I, I belong. And every time that you have an experience where you feel that, you feel welcomed somewhere, or you feel like you fit in, it's really anchoring that in and reinforcing that and, and paying attention to it. So gathering the evidence to support the new belief. Um, and also, it's important to act as if. So taking on um, models of possibility, people that are already the living embodiment mm. of what you want to be, and then how do they show up in the world? And so really living from the place that you already are that, and that's also going to help anchor it in. Mm. God, it's awesome. The reticular activation system, that's like the part of our brain that when you buy like a new car, you suddenly see that car everywhere, right? Yes. Yeah. So, so our brain is in fact a remarkable tool for filtering for pot for confirmational data. And what I'm hearing you say is that by making this choice, we're inviting it to filter for the kind of confirmational data that actually proves to us that this new expansive reality is true. And it always has been, we just haven't seen it yet. Exactly. Yeah. And what, and what I'm really excited by about, and maybe this is part of the work you do, but when we think about your invitation to what is the most expansive opposite of the belief you had, and if the belief you had was something like, I don't belong, an opposite belief is, something like I do belong and that's beautiful. But when I, but when I sit with like, what's most expansive, there's something there. Like I'm here to help everyone feel like they belong. Yeah. Like suddenly you're now an agent of belonging for the people who you once thought didn't want you to belong or actually just as afraid and just have all the same, they've had all these same beliefs and you can actually now be a force to help others soften and let go and like it just is an unbelievable gift to help people go all the way to the the expansive opposite. Totally. Or, you know, um, the belief that I don't belong is actually rooted in the illusion of separation. Mm, yes. And so you can never not belong yeah. in truth. So yeah. this, exp- the most expansive opposite is really that I'm one with all creation. I'm one <laughs> with everyone. Yeah. And so, you know, but that is our deepest fear and our our deepest core wound is this separation. Mm. And so we can Mm. never be separate from others or separate from life. You know, it's just the, the Maya, the, the veil of illusion that tells us that we, that we don't belong or we don't fit in, or, you know, we're going to be cast out. And then that activates the deepest existential fears. And so you know, the, the most expansive belief that you could take on is this truth that I am one with everything. Hmm. So, you know, it's like, great. You can start with, I, I belong and, you know, work from there. But when you're really operating from the highest levels of flow, you're taking on the most expansive beliefs. Hmm. And so when I really am in the embodiment of, I am one with all of life, I know that it's just a bullshit story that I don't belong because I could never not belong. Yeah. And so, you know, but it's one thing to know that or have an idea of it and be like, Oh yeah, that sounds nice. That's great. We're all one. But when you're really living the embodiment of it, it's so much easier to reject the idea that I don't belong. Hmm. Hmm. Right. Or not. It's, it's a, uh... It's like you don't even need to reject it because even that idea is just one little particle in in this vast ocean that we're all a part of. And it's like, oh yeah, sometimes I feel like I don't belong or sometimes you don't feel like, that's okay because we're all one, (laughs) right? Like there's just this deep, endless compassion in relation to even those moments where we do get scared and that's okay too. And, you know, that can easily go into the realm of bypass. And so it's important to note that like having that understanding it doesn't exclude you from from doing the work and yes there's absolutely it's part of the human condition part of the human experience like I have times where I feel like I don't belong and yeah I feel separate and you know I'm not operating from that 
truth of, of oneness all the time, you know, it's part of our human condition or part of our human experience, you know, so to not just dissociate and say like, oh, yeah. we're all one, everything's great. It's like, no, let me be with that experience that I'm having of not belonging and not fitting in and feeling separate from all of life. And in the being with it and processing of it, it takes us back into the ultimate truth. Mm. And so it's, it's not just going into the realm of bypass and everything's love and light. It's no, I'm actually going to deeply work with these existential fears that are coming up, these um, deep wounded patterns so that I can heal them. So awesome. So maybe we could, could, we've got about 10 minutes left. Maybe we could end where we started, which has to do with this, the space that you're, you find yourself in now, which, which might be referred to as conscious leadership or evolutionary leadership, or, you know, there's something about the work that you're doing that you're now consciously and intentionally bringing into spaces with people who are thinking about things or working on things or feeling their way through things that have the potential to impact lots of us. And I wonder um, what, what sort of North star or energy is, is drawing you through that and why, like what's so important about this for leaders that they do this work and that we think about this kind of work that you do. Yeah, absolutely. I love that question. Um, was it Einstein said, you can't solve a problem from the, the same level of thinking. And I, I feel that way about consciousness. So here we are trying to solve the world's biggest problems, mm. but, you know, from an old paradigm of, of consciousness where we're in this, I have to compete with others. And I, you know, if I don't get ahead, I'm going to fall behind and, and, and just in this every man for themselves, uh, competition over collaboration and, and just this really old patriarchal outdated way of doing things that isn't supportive to humanity as a whole. Hmm. It's not supportive to our earth, which, you know, we're, we're seeing. And uh, it's a time when all of our systems and structures as we know them are in a state of, of collapse and, hmm. and in order to rebuild them, it, it you know we could put a band-aid on all of these things and and try to you know repair them or we could just tear that shit down and start from a, a more advanced higher level of consciousness that is inclusive of the whole mm. and that is you know with all of humanity and the planet in mind and so, you know, it was saying before we're in this adolescent consciousness and really shifting into this place where we are looking out for each other. And so recreating these systems, the healthcare, education, political, um, medical, all of it, it's, it needs to be rebuilt from a new level of awareness. Mm. And so a new paradigm of, of being and um, so that's that's really my North Star and, and why I work with people who are leaders in the social impact space or am bridging communities that have large access to, to capital mm. and to mm. fund these projects that are in service to the evolution of consciousness and mm. um, bringing together communities of consciousness thought leaders with the social impact communities, because I really feel like um, if we're rebuilding all of these systems from the same level of awareness that we're at now, we're going to get more of the same problems, but exponentially because we're building them with exponential technology. Mm. And mm. so an immediacy and urgency mm. to um, really shifting into a new paradigm of, of thinking and being that create systems that are more inclusive and in service to humanity and the planet. Yeah. Fuck. Yeah. <laughs> Such a beautiful vision. Maybe in our last few minutes, I, there's a, this is sort of maybe this could be a whole nother conversation. So I want to honor the question that I'm about to ask you is a big one, but I just really sense that you'll have some wisdom or perspective here. That's, that's, that's expansive. I've been sitting a lot lately with a question of 
what mass healing or collective healing might look like or, or how we might do that work. Because the, the limit, at least the, the, maybe this is a limiting belief. Maybe there's some work I can do here for myself, but a, a limiting belief I'm encountering or is that the kind of healing you've been describing, the kind of work that, that I've done for myself and with others, which has some of what you've described in it, is very, very deeply interpersonal. It's very deeply one-on-one or small group. And the urgency you're describing for a planet of seven and a half billion people and growing is one where both every single individual who is willing to do the deep inner excavation and surface the beliefs and upgrade the code is like every one of us matters. And there's a sense that there's a bit of a a race against time here. And I just wonder how you're relating to to that. Like, I'm just going to drop those seeds and see how you're relating to that question of urgency and, collective healing and, and individual healing and how, how you're working with that right now and how you see what you're doing connect to that. Yeah. And, and so the way that we've developed our work is a way that it can scale and, and we're mm. looking to um, create a train the trainer program. So we have facilitators, we have students in 50 countries now and, and, <laughs> you know, many of whom have expressed the desire to want to be, teachers and, and facilitators of this work. Mm. And so that's one way, you know, just through our work, but there's so many people doing beautiful work in the world. And I think, you know, having a trauma-informed be a standard for education, for healthcare, mm. for all of these different things, because, mm. you know, the root of, of so many societal issues, whether it's homelessness or incarceration, um, is trauma mm. and so instead of trying to outwardly control people's behavior and stop them from doing things, it's it's really we need to go and work with the wounding that's creating these different patterns. And so I think um, really having a trauma-informed society is huge. Um, and again, just bringing these tools into our education system, but mm. also you know, there's, there's an element of preaching to the choir, you know, so I'm sure people that are listening to your podcast are like all on board for this, but then it's like, how do we get out beyond the bubble? Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. so media, conscious media having, um, in the same way that our consciousness was programmed with, uh, you know, like I grew up with fairy tales and, um, this idea that one day my prince will come and, and save me, you know, all of these ideas <laughs> that are, disempowering um we get to create empowering media and create films and stories and and narratives that are actually programming our our youth with the ideas that they are infinite and limitless and um but then also there's uh it's it's a logarithmic shift you know that that if uh, enough of us are on board and, and shifting our consciousness the the up level effect for the collective consciousness, mm. I believe, is um, it will reach a, a tipping point. And some mm. people say it's one hundred and forty four thousand people. Or um, wow, you know I, that I number know. seems so small in relationship to it to the planet. But what an interesting! I read somewhere that for for peaceful pro like uh, peaceful protest and activism. That in, that in all cases throughout history, it has only required three and a half percent of a population. You know, so if we use Gandhi as an example or, or Martin Luther King and the civil rights movement, that actually it was only three and a half percent of an entire country or nation or group that's required to peacefully protest something for that change to take place. So it sounds to me like you're tuning into that on the, with this idea of conscious evolution that maybe we don't need maybe it doesn't start with the assumption that all seven and a half billion people have to wake up at once, but rather that we need some sort of critical mass. And and that's a lot smaller than, than we might think it needs to be. Yes. Absolutely. Oh, that's beautiful. Jackie, this has been such a gift. I feel like I could keep asking you questions for hours. Appreciate you taking the hour today that we did. My absolute pleasure. Yeah. If people want to find out more about your work, where should they go? 
the the home for our work is flowconsciousnessinstitute.com feel free to connect on any of the socials and yeah love to hear the impact or insights that you're taking away beautiful thanks so much jackie thanks everyone for listening in thanks for tuning into the wonder dome this podcast was produced by me andy cahill with support from kelly Sirqua and audio editing services from john nolan at middle mountain studios the theme song was written and performed by todd marston you can find the wonder dome wherever pods are casted if you dig what we're doing here please share widely subscribe and give us some love in the review boards and if you feel called to support this humble offering to the world while also making an even greater impact in the lives of others consider becoming a monthly supporter not only will you help me keep the lights on and keep the show going for as long as i'm able but 30 percent of all member contributions go directly in support of causes like the black lives matter movement the united nations refugee agency and the national resources defense council You can find out more at my website, mindfulcreative.coach, where you can also sign up for my newsletter, learn about my transformational coaching work, and get plugged into exclusive offers and community happenings. In the meantime, I'm wishing you a life of purpose, power, and presence. We need you now, more than ever.